Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, David Cariani has a special guest on. David, how are you? Good, good. How are you doing, Eric? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, sir. I just, I'm happy to be with you. It's a beautiful Friday and I know that you've brought a guest on. Who's our guest today? Our guest is Ted Conrads from Colchis Capital. I'm really excited to be sharing him with our listeners. From what I have learned from Ted, uh, we have some very interesting things to talk about today. Fantastic. Ted, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be here with both of you this morning. Thanks for taking the time. All right, David, let's get it. All right. Well, um, listen, uh, the listeners have had the great pleasure of spending a half an hour getting to know me in uh, one of our earlier sessions. So we don't need to get into that. But let's take a minute, Ted, if you could if you could fill us in on a little bit of your background and and, uh, who you are, that would be helpful. Would, would be happy to. Thanks. Thanks so much, David. Uh, yeah, so Ted Conrad's, uh, it, it, I am the co-founder and co-president of Colchis Capital, a West Coast-based asset management firm. Grew up on the East Coast, just outside of New York. Really tried to make my way out to the West Coast and ended up going to Stanford undergrad and, and majoring in economics. Came out of school and, uh, and spent actually a, a couple of years back on the East Coast, uh, working for a small asset management firm called Sterling Stamos before making my way back to the San Francisco area to co-found Colchis with, with my father, Bob Conrads. And really over the last 15 years have uh, been building that firm in a, a variety of credit-related and real estate-related strategies that we've deployed throughout the years and through the different cycles. Well, so just for our listeners' benefit, Ted and I were in the same space uh, in San Francisco, both uh, in the hedge fund industry in the early 2000s, and uh, probably been in the room together uh, a number of times, but never actually met until we were introduced last year. So I've had the pleasure of getting to know Ted and, and learn about what he's up to lately. And that is uh, where we currently are in, in San Diego. So it's uh, quite a coincidence, but... Uh, we had some similar backgrounds, but uh, have just come together recently. And what I'd like to do is share with you what Ted is uh, up to. So, uh, Ted, let's let's switch. You said you you founded Colchis about 15 years ago, and let's talk about Colchis and who you serve and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, thanks for that, David. So, you know, since our inception, really, the the way that we approach our investment strategies and and how we serve clients is is candidly how we would want to be treated and, and how we would want to see outside managers work with us you know, as a fiduciary for their own capital. And, and really what that means is we've been re- very focused on establishing a series of strategies and fund structures that are meant to really take advantage of the dynamics and the situations as they develop throughout time uh, see those strategies through, and then ultimately rotate out of those strategies through our structures in a way that that best serves investors and how we would want to see our own capital deployed and then ultimately return to us. And it's I think it's important to note that anytime we engage in, in a new investment, 
opportunity, uh, we're right there alongside investors and, and really use our own capital to effectively seed these strategies. So that's really been, you know, it's very general, but very much the core North Star for us since we've gotten started. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of context around how that's developed throughout time, as I had mentioned, in terms of my background, uh, we've been largely focused on the credit-related space uh, going back to our inception with a particular focus on, on real estate and consumer assets. That those are those are the really the, the qualities and the capabilities that we've developed over time. That's manifested itself going all the way back to 2006, where we put together a, a dedicated strategy to really express a negative view of how the housing market would, would affect the broader economy prior to the global financial crisis, where we shorted the subprime market through what's now sort of notably the, the big short trade, if you will, and then, and then capitalized on that success to form a series of closed-ended funds that were very targeted uh, and specific in their mandate to go long distressed mortgage-related assets coming out of the now the last crisis, the, the global financial crisis, and did that successfully for a number of years before, again, winding those funds down and returning capital to investors successfully. And then have re really developed a view as to how the, the global banking system would be restructuring itself and specifically how more consumer oriented and, and technology enabled firms uh, would, would provide credit to consumers as, as traditional banks were restructuring and, and, and really pulling back and built a, a fund strategy over the ensuing nine years or so to, to provide uh, consumer credit to folks uh, along with variations on that in the real estate space, student lending and small business. That's, that's an, an income fund strategy that we've deployed over the years. And, the, and then finally, really started to develop a view as to how the intersection of technology and data we're going to continue to reshape uh, really the single family rental market as, as that becomes an insti more institutional oriented uh, investment landscape and uh, informed uh, the fund we're talking about today or, or the series of the funds we're talking about today in our real estate strategy in, in 2017. We, we serve really a global group of investors. We've had hundreds of investors on, on virtually every continent and continue to have a, a wonderful network of, of clients that we work with. As it relates specifically to the real estate uh, related strategy, uh, we, we tend to work with U.S. taxable investors, just given the, the tremendous income and, and tax benefited income that, that we're generating in this strategy. Well, thanks. Thanks for that background. It sounds like you guys have well-timed some of those investment themes and they've worked out very well the shorting subprime and then catching them at the bottom as they're coming back up. I'm sure that worked out very well for you. As you know, real estate uh, is a topic of interest here at Centura. So uh, you mentioned your activities on that front, and I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper there. You talked about investing in residential real estate, and you know that's a space that you know ranges from mom and pops investing in single family rental properties to institutional investors like Blackstone building massive portfolios of thousands and thousands of homes. Where do you fit in there and, and what sets you apart? 
Yeah, great, great question. There's uh, increasingly a view that the single family rental market is going to effectively go down a similar path to what you've seen, for example, in commercial and in multifamily, where a number of different sectors within the real estate industry have become more institutionalized, more standardized as folks have developed business models that scale and are repeatable uh, across what is otherwise a very difficult strategy or, or market to scale that's fragmented. Um, and certainly you've seen that, for example, in the multifamily industry, if you were to go back to the 80s, 70s, 80s, it was largely a mom and pop industry that served apartments and, and folks who are looking to, to, to hold or invest in, in multifamily. And now that's very well established asset class where based on industry reports, something like 70% of it's actually institutionally owned. The single family rental market is, is going through a similar transition, but just lagged by two or three decades. And really it was the global financial crisis and the aftermath of that that provided the opening for very well capitalized, sophisticated groups such as Blackstone and what have you to step in and purchase very large portfolios of homes as, as those portfolios were available, made available by banks and, uh, and servicers that were servicing mortgage-related pools. And that was a, a very particular uh, point in time that gave investors the scale to buy large portfolios in markets that were most acutely affected by the downturn. Uh, you know, these would be the traditional smile states in, in areas that we're all familiar with that, that were, were hurt most severely by the downturn. And so these groups, you know, I, I think really have done a wonderful job of proving out the, the benefits of the single family rental asset class as a stable, reliable uh, asset class for investors. And similarly for, for the residents that rent these homes have, have demonstrated the benefit of professional management and, and providing them a great customer experience in terms of providing them an owner occupied like product with, with the convenience uh, and, and affordability of renting. What the, the global financial crisis did not enable was these groups to go into areas that were not as severely impacted by the last downturn, specifically the Midwest, which tends to be a bit of a, a more uh, boring market in the sense that during the downturn, uh, things were not as distressed. There weren't these large portfolios available for sale just because generally speaking, borrower behavior in those markets was, was more sustainable and, and better. And, and therefore they focused on the markets where they could get larger portfolios. So we, we fit in in that we have the tremendous benefit of watching how these larger players have, have executed and what metrics are important to focus on while being able to go into a market they, they don't currently address. And the reason that we're able to address it is that we've de developed the technology, both proprietary technology, as well as leveraging an ecosystem of providers to buy individual homes in these otherwise very uncompetitive markets that, that simply don't, to be candid, provide the scale 
that would be attractive to these larger groups that hold tens of thousands of homes. It's really sort of the best of both worlds in the sense that we have the benefit of the institutionalization of, of the market from the, the level of service providers that are out there to help us do this more efficiently, as well as capital markets and providers that really love this asset class because it's been proven out with, with these larger players. While at the same time, we have the benefit of, of not need having to compete with them in markets that they traditionally don't serve. So, so what I'm gathering is that you're fitting right in the middle there accumulating a portfolio of single family residents that's not to the massive scale of these large institutional buyers, but you do have adequate scale to garner efficiencies. In, yeah, in absolutely, David. So it's the really what we've set out to do is to generate sufficient scale in each one of our markets. We're currently in four markets, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Minneapolis, and Pittsburgh. So within each of those markets, uh, achieve sufficient scale such that we can operate efficiently and, and very importantly, leverage technology to do that and, and achieve economies at scale at, at a lower level than otherwise thought was sort of traditionally necessary, while also having the benefit of being very selective in terms of the areas in which we invest the homes that we underwrite and purchase and the residents that we attract to those homes. Well, um, let me let me dig in a little bit there. You mentioned technology a couple times now. Technology has crept into so many industries and been transformative. Where are we in this real estate investing with regards to technology? What what role is technology playing in here and how significant is it? Great question. Yeah. So the, the way that I would characterize it is if you look broadly at the SFR single family rental industry, it is still very much a mom and pop business. So while there's been the larger SFR REITs that have proven out that if you bring institutional scale and quality, you can generate a wonderful outcome. And they've, they've demonstrated that and they've done it with tens of thousands of homes. That may lead one to believe that the industry is already consolidated. But, but the reality is it's just such an enormous market. We're talking close to 20 million individual homes that represent the, the single family rental market. Um, that it still represents a very small percentage. So that the current estimate is that 98% of single family homes are owned by an individual that owns fewer than five homes. And, and so if you, if you think about that, it suggests that from a technology and sophistication standpoint, the business is still very much in the analog age. That is the majority of folks operating these homes are doing it at a, on a very ad hoc, not cost-effective basis and, and probably not providing the best customer service to their residents. And, and I don't mean that as, as a put down, it's just without scale, you can't provide the type of service that we think residents deserve. So on the one hand, you're dealing with an industry that is, that is very antiquated. On the other hand, the, the tremendous benefit of that is if, if you can develop both proprietary technology and increasingly leverage an ecosystem of providers you can really differentiate what you're doing. And so that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves interacting with 
fragmented data, fragmented systems, but bringing to bear increasingly novel approaches and, and more streamlined approaches to, to acquiring homes, renovating them, and importantly, serving our residents. So I think it's, it's an absolutely wonderful time to take a more technologically sophisticated and forward approach to each one of these elements that sort of define the life cycle of a property and, and then the ongoing management of that property. And so it's not, it's not something that you can compare, you can characterize as the industry being enabled by technology, but certainly there are players within the industry that are uh, utilizing technology in a, in a wonderful way. And I think naturally this market will evolve and, and there will be increasing consolidation and adoption of technology as it becomes more institutional. Right. Well, so, so when you talk about your strategy specifically, and I am far from an expert on that, but you showed a little bit of an example of something that made me feel like I was in the NORAD control center. <laughs> Um, with the uh, with the geo mapping of uh, of real estate, and how how big of an impact, how important is that to your strategy and its overall success? Well, yeah, thank, thanks for that question. So, yeah, really, what you're 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 framing is there there are sort of three elements to the proprietary nature of what we do on the technology side. There's what we call that our geospatial intelligence, not, not to, to overstate it, but it, it truly is a, a wonderful uh, tool. That's what you're referring to. And then the other two pieces that we've developed is um, really, if you go down to a very micro level, uh, our tool or our platform that we use to underwrite individual homes and then what we call our SFR services, which is really our, our data and, and reporting and data visualization engine that we've built that inter interacts with all the, the, the various systems. So specifically talking about our geospatial capability, the way to think about that is that it gives us particular insight and surveillance into certain areas within the, the metropolitan areas that we're buying in. And specifically what it allows us to do is go down to a fairly granular level, which we characterize as a neighborhood block. That's typically gonna be approximately 300 homes or residences or thereabouts. And within that fairly defined area, we are able to both identify or project, if you will, returns. And we, 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 we aggregate that all the way up into an IRR that's a function of yield projections around rent growth and home price appreciation. And cross-tab that with what we think about as the quality of that area. And so really what we're looking to do is to invest in cities that have a lot of dis dispersion of experience. And in, in doing so, in, in basically searching out areas that where there's a lot of variability, we're able to leverage this tool to add a lot of value of effectively getting what we're, we're looking to achieve is the best of both worlds where we can come out of the gates with a superior yield relative to what you would traditionally see in real estate and certainly within single family homes, but invest in areas that have a tailwind in terms of the quality of those areas. We use metrics like school district, income growth, crime, 
variability of, of the quality of the inventory in that area. So if you think about sort of the optimal outcome for us, it would be to invest in an area that's characterized as, as having these positive attributes, but has a lot of variability in terms of the housing quality or stock in that area. So if you think about our capabilities to come in, identify those homes, underwrite them quickly, make all cash offers, and then importantly, do a really high quality renovation in a high quality area, we can take the ugly ducklings, if you will, and bring them up to, if not exceeding the average quality in those areas, given our scale. So, so this you know, tool the, is, a, is a really important part of that, that formula. I was going to say, one of the most important things for us is, is tax efficiency in, invest, in investments. And from my understanding, this is a very tax efficient strategy. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So there's effectively an unfair advantage, if you will, in, in, as you're deeply familiar with, David, in investing broadly speaking in, in real estate, which provides investors the, the benefit of uh, things like depreciation on the assets that you're, you're, you're investing in, which allow you to shelter a portion of your income with that depreciation through the life of the investment. And then ultimately you get a step up in basis, things of that nature. We benefit, our funds benefit and our investors benefit from all those typical dynamics that you see within the context of investing in real estate, but effectively turbocharged by the fact that not only are we investing in, in real estate assets, but that we're doing a significant renovation. And we're doing it, we're doing those renovations at, at a relatively small scale, if you look at it on an individual home level. So we're doing it on large scale across our activities in these markets. But if you, if you go down to the micro of an individual home, we're typically buying these homes for between $150,000 and $200,000. And we're uh, doing a significant improvement to the property, which generally will equate to about 25% of, of the purchase price, such that we're, and we're itemizing each of those expenses such that we're able to take those, those really those, those improvements in the property that are, are building long-term value for the resident and for the fund, but we're able to ex- take those as expenses based on the, the tax law. So effectively what that does is that it creates a, a loss carry forward account that, that shelters the future income distributions that come off the fund really for the for the foreseeable future. That's assuming that an investor doesn't have other passive income that resides outside of the partnership. The, the dynamics around the tax benefit become even more advantageous to the extent that the investor has uh, in passive in real estate income outside of the partnership. Then they could simply accelerate the advantage of having that huge loss in the, in the first year, correct? That's correct. Interesting. Well, that's, that's, uh, if I were to summarize that, I'd say you would initially, upon completion of improvements, have an increase in value and yet a loss on the tax records. Correct. Yeah. We're, we're getting the benefit of improving the property, setting it up for long-term success from a rental perspective. Uh, we're effectively, you know, over-investing in the property to set it up for long-term success. So we've got this, this wonderful asset we've created with long-term intrinsic value, but to, directly to your point, as it relates to what shows up on the K-1, it's, it, we're, we're expensing that improvement. 
that is incredibly efficient uh, from a tax perspective. So how, how has this, we've talked about sort of the strategy um, broadly and, and the theory, how has this translated to results? I know you've had a, a fund. Can you give us some information about that, that how long it's been around and what your experience has been there? What's gone right? Yeah. So, so we, we started in this space in 2017, as I, as I had mentioned, we, we, we start each of our strategies with our own capital. So we started to explore specifically in the Cleveland market, purchasing homes, renovating them, and then renting them. And that was all done within the context of fund one. As we got more experience, we, we brought in outside capital from our, our investor relationships. And I'd say broadly speaking, we've been exceptionally happy with, with the results that, are, that have been achieved in, in that first partnership. Naturally, as you're building a new business, it hasn't been without its challenges, but we view each of those challenges really as an opportunity to learn from them and, and make adjustments and, and, and learn how to, to scale. So I'd say, broadly speaking, the results have been wonderful in terms of the quality of the homes, the residents we've attracted, and our, our realized results around how those homes have appreciated and the yields that we're generating. Uh, so that's all been very much sort of down the fairway in terms of, of expectation and, and where we wanted to be. Where we had challenges and, and did not achieve original expectations was the ability and, and the timeline, if you will, to scale. So it took us longer to execute on the original capital that we had raised in that fund and, and there were several bottlenecks to that. One was just as we go into a new city, how do we standardize our processes and procedures that we had developed in Cleveland as our first market? And then, and then process, importantly, the large scale renovations we're doing. And that was something that, that just took a little bit more time than we would have anticipated. Now, the tremendous benefit of that, uh, frankly, for, for, for where we are today, is that we've taken the necessary time to develop the business processes, the human capital and our technology, such that we've got a very consistent set of processes, procedures, and data that allow us to basically turn the crank and, and to be doing this at greater scale with very similar results, as we've shared with you, between what we've actually achieved in fund one and, and how we're tracking in fund two as, as we do this at greater scale. So as you've improved and you've, you've had your learnings and, and um, grown along the way, what are the things that you've seen, you know, people are always concerned on the, on the negative side. What, what are, what are the risks to this strategy? Yeah, I think that the, the biggest risk, which, which is, is controllable, but nonetheless is something that we've got to be exceptionally focused on is really the renovation piece. It's, I think we, we have all the appropriate controls, data analytics, and repeatability in terms of targeting the areas that we want to buy in. And, and we've got a very tight process around the underwriting of individual homes in terms of the expectations that we set up front and then measuring those outcomes and being able to course correct, as well as our, our rental comp data and, and really understanding how to calibrate the demand for these homes. The challenge comes in as you're executing on those acquisitions, 
uh, making sure that your renovation capabilities stays up to speed in terms of the ability to literally process those, do it in a cost-effective and timely manner in high quality. And so, so I think that that, to me, as we scale the strategy, is, is really the biggest risk. And so I, th- you know, I think that that's a risk for the overall strategy and for our ability to scale. Candidly, it's not as much of a risk for an investor because it, it really is a matter of, of timing. In other words, we're, not gonna, we're never going to find ourselves in a situation where we're just wholesalely buying homes without the ability to renovate them. We'll simply dial our purchase activity um, down or up based on that renovation capability and um, capacity. And so really what it means is, is whether there's an acceleration or, or a delay in the deployment of the capital. So I'd say that's, that's the biggest risk that is within our operational control. I think in terms of external risk, we obviously live in exceptionally uncertain times right now. And I, I think broadly speaking, it's somewhat serendipitous that a number of the, the trends that are being accelerated by the current crisis actually do benefit single family residential properties, especially in, in more suburban areas outside of these cities, which is where we're attracted. That being said, I think it would be misguided for us to suggest that we're completely immune to, to, to the current crisis. You know, you do have things like uh, the CDC coming out with policies to for moratorium on foreclosure and or, or, or eviction rather, sorry. And, you know, while I d- that hasn't had just objectively uh, an impact on us to date, it's something we need to be aware of. And, and I do think we'll, uh, as there's additional government policies and, and just changes in society to, to take an empathetic and appropriate uh, approach to residents that, that fall in hard times, I think it's something that we need to be very cognizant of and be working with our residents and, and frankly, be screening our residents appropriately uh, to make sure that people are qualified given, given the current environment. And as I said, we've had an overwhelmingly positive experience during this COVID crisis, but it's something that we think about every day. So what, what is your, your uh, typical tenant profile? Or what, what area are you trying to serve? What's sort of the credit quality? I know that's a big part of your background as well as in, in consumer credit. And, and how much does that play into your, your strategy? Yeah, so naturally, we have a very diverse group of residents that we serve. But we want to serve a, a broad group of people from, from different varied backgrounds. That being said, we are, are very uh, methodical about screening our tenants for their credit history and, and ensuring that they've been responsible with, with debt and, and to the extent that they've been a renter in the past, we, we want to understand that history and make sure that they've, they've been honorable in, in how they've worked with folks in the past. So we have very stringent criteria around their credit history and and rent history, um, as well as income and employment verification. So we we verify income and employment on each one of our applicants. We have thresholds around credit criteria. And and all of that has led to, on average, a resident base uh, that's going to be 
have just fundamentally a different profile than your typical renter in these markets. And to kind of calibrate that, we're generally going to be looking at household income north of about $130,000. The credit profile of our residents going to be squarely in the prime segment. For example, an indicator would be, you know, average FICO north of 730. If you compare that to the average just household in these markets, you know, you're looking at income that's often north of a of 2x the average household profile in these markets and if importantly if you compare it to the average renter in these markets it's going to be even more differentiated so typically our residents for example would have 6 to 7 times the income of their average rent whereas what you would typically see is something closer to 3 times so it's just fundamentally a different profile and so what we're, what we're offering folks is really a, a very high quality differentiated home or product that, that's effectively very similar to an owner-occupied type experience with, with greater flexibility and affordability if you look at it you know, over shorter timeframes for these folks. And these, in the areas in which we, we invest don't typically, they're not typical rental areas. So if I'm summarizing, you're really leveraging technology to help select ideal um, you know, markets to be playing in. You're working with very high quality tenants. What does this translate to as far as, you know, I, I think people would be interested to hear about results. What, what can you achieve in the single family residential market as far as what's your, what's your ideal outcome as far as returns, growth and yield? Yeah. So I think on, on the positive, given the markets that we're in, the fact that we're doing tremendous sort of value add improvements to the home, which, which also implies that we're, we're able to get into the homes at a, at a very attractive price, right? Given that we're able to do a substantial renovation to, to improve the property, it, that also implies that we're, we're buying homes that are, are less desirable for someone who doesn't have that experience on the renovation side in scale. So all, all, what all that leads to is out of the gates, a yield on the properties, uh, which seems somewhat inconsistent with the quality of the areas we're in and the quality of the asset. Specifically, you know, what I mean by that is we're generally on a gross basis, looking at yields that are, are north of 10%. Um, if you just simply look at all in costs relative to the, the gross rents being achieved. Uh, and given that we're focusing on very high quality areas, high quality residents with a property that's been set up for long-term success in terms of uh, deferred maintenance and repairs. We're able to achieve operating metrics that, that looks more similar to multifamily. So think about it as kind of mid sixties and North NOI operating metrics ratios. So we're, we're kind of in the six and a half to 7% net yields currently on these properties. So it, it gives us, really pretty a favorable tailwind. If you look at the attribution of, of the IRR or the return over time, being that we're starting at from such a strong point from a yield basis. And, and really what that affords us is not needing to make heroic projections around what our rent growth and, and home price appreciation growth is going to be through time. You, you would contrast that to what you see in, in perhaps more traditional uh, rental markets in the coastal areas or or the sand states, where 
you're coming out of the gates at much tighter yields and, and really forecasting strong rent growth and, and home price growth based on favorable demographics. And, and admittedly, the Midwest markets do not have as favorable uh, demographics or, or macro tailwinds if you look broadly across those markets, but they do have greater dispersion and variability and tend to be less volatile. So what, what all that means is that we can project, given that we're starting at a high yield, we can project very modest home price appreciation and rent growth that would be reflective of the last 40 years in these markets and still generate very favorable uh, returns on a long-term basis. And, it, and as you mentioned, a, a tax-efficient format. Yeah, that's important to note, I guess, that that, that level of yield is, is essentially not going to show up on your tax return. Correct. It's up the bank account, but it's not going to show up on the tax return, which I think is an, a very important distinction and why, why we love real estate. Well, as you look forward, sort of what, what major trends do you see developing, you know, as, as strategy is being deployed like this and others are, are advancing um, their strategies as well? What, what sort of trends do you see developing? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a there's several secular or or macro trends that are going to make a, you know a meaningful difference in this area over the next ten years or so. I mean, I think that perhaps the most important overarching trend for people to understand is that from a demographic perspective, the younger generations represent the largest demographic in this country. I think people historically have understandably focused on the baby baby boomer generation. But if you look at, for example, the millennial generation, it's actually larger than the baby boomer generation. And if you couple that with these people increasingly forming households, now admittedly at, at a later point in life than prior generations, but that generation is now getting to the point where they're rapidly forming households. And if you contrast that to the, the underinvestment in single family residential properties in the US coming out of the 08, 09 downturn, it sets up for a very interesting dynamic in terms of the lack of supply of single family residences. And the reason for that is that for you know well understood reasons, there the the cost associated with developing single family homes relative to multifamily is difficult from a new development perspective. While at the same time, you've seen underinvestment in an existing housing stock, single family residential housing stock. And so I think just from a, from a very sort of high level perspective, there needs to be a tremendous amount of investment to provide the type of housing product, whether that's on the rental side or the, the homeowner side, for this generation that's that's raising families and increasingly looking for a different type of experience than than an apartment or or otherwise. And so I think that leads to a favorable tailwind from the demand side of things. And really what it requires is that folks who are offering that supply think very sort of strategically and methodically around how we we offer up that that product to to these folks. Uh, in a in a sustainable and cost effective way, 
And where we where we fit into that, obviously, as, as you've learned during this discussion is by taking existing housing stock and, and improving it and, and making it available for this this next generation. So I think that's that's a really important component. And then the other important component is, and I think this is across society, it tends to be emphasized among the younger generations, but we see in our business that it's it's all people. And I think increasingly COVID is accelerating folks wanting a very seamless, transparent technology enabled uh, service or experience. And I don't think that housing is exempt from that. So for example, every single one of our residents that has uh, submitted an application and ultimately occupied one of our homes has done that completely independently, meaning they've scheduled a self-showing of the home. Each one of our homes is enabled with a smart home system that allows keyless entry to the home to view it and, and then to submit an application online, which is then subsequently reviewed and processed in our offices in the Philippines. And then we, we do our very best to provide exceptional service all the way from the point that the person submits an application to the point that they become a resident. And all of this has been done in a very streamlined, automated way that our residents really appreciate. And then they continue to interact with us on that basis. So for example, when they have a maintenance request, they submit it over the app, the app on their phone. And we have a very standardized way of ser- serving those people that they appreciate. So I think increasingly in this real estate space, it, it truly will be tech enabled and there, there will be an acceleration of the way that uh, landlords serve, serve their residents. Well, it sounds like you guys are definitely on top of that trend. You guys are definitely onto something here and it's, um, it's been very exciting learning about it. I think it's, it's incredibly compelling. I, I appreciate your time, Ted. This has been a very interesting and informative conversation. We at Centura are definitely excited to continue learning more about your strategy and uh, the opportunities that that may present for our clients. I'm sure we have uh, a lot of clients whose ears are perked up uh, and listeners. And I really want to thank you for sharing uh, your time with us today and and, uh, the information. And and again, look forward to learning more. Yeah, well, we really appreciate the opportunity to share what we're doing with with you, David, and and your broader team and, and client base. Very much look forward to you know, working with you on this and, and happy to follow up with any additional questions and, and really appreciate the, the opportunity today. Thank you, Ted. All right, guys, this has been fantastic. Uh, a ton of great information. Ted, you mentioned uh, something I did not know that the millennial generation is actually larger than the baby boom generation. And now I'm really curious about the COVID-19 generation. I mean, everybody's locked in their houses, nothing to do, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> we may have a housing crisis in about 25 years. I don't know. Anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll call you then. Is that okay? That sounds great. We, we've got some great rental properties for you if you're, if you're looking to make a change. <laughs> All right. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much. David, thank you so much for bringing Ted on the show today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for hosting, Eric. I always appreciate it. And again, thank you, Ted. Very much appreciate your time. No, I really, really enjoyed chatting with both of you today. Thank you. You bet. And the last thank you, of course, goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. 
This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. The contents of this podcast is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of any interests in any private fund. Interests in any alternative investment vehicle are offered only pursuant to the terms of a confidential private placement memorandum, which is furnished only to qualified investors on a confidential basis for their consideration in connection with the private offering. The information contained in this podcast may not be reproduced or redistributed.